So we're going to continue now with oral dermatology, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about the tongue, and a lot of things you didn't think you wanted to know about the tongue, and a lot about the most vexing problem of the tongue, and that's the burning mouth or sore burning tongue. So here we go with 10 tongue troubles and the burning mouth syndrome. No disclosures to make. We will talk about medications with off-label use. And the patients have given their permission for us to use their images in educational uh, activities. So greetings from Rochester, Minnesota. This is what it looks like now at this time of year, the Zumbro River. The leaves are out. The trees have survived another winter. Rochester, Minnesota is in the southeastern corner of the state of Minnesota. It's very near Greg's home in La Crosse, Wisconsin, which is just right across the Mississippi River. Rochester is in uh, a beautiful, beautiful forested area, with lots and lots of trees on the western bank of the Mississippi River, lots of farmland, and we're at the beginning of the uh, Great Plains. So to our east, we run into beautiful hardwood forest, trout stream, ski areas. To our west, the Great Plains start, and uh, that's where farming, you drive your harvester one day to the east and turn around, spend the night, come back to the west when you harvest your wheat fields. These are some views of Rochester and Mayo Clinic. Now, in this picture are three people who have the name, what's the name? Roy Rogers, right. And which, which am I? Roy Rogers III. So that means that my father was Roy Rogers Jr., and he's the guy on to my left. I'm the little guy in the middle, and that's 1947 Snow Hill Country Club in Appalachia, Ohio. And the guy to my right, his name is Leonard Sly. His stage name was Roy Rogers. So all three people in this picture were, were born in Ohio. Me, my dad, and Leonard. Now, my grandfather was also a dentist. So my grandfather and my father practiced dentistry together. And my grandfather uh, practiced dentistry. Uh, when he started his practice, there weren't very many people living near where he lived, so he had to have satellite practices. And one of the communities he practiced in had this family named Sly. Mom and dad had a bunch of kids. Leonard was one of them. Well, they were smarter than many people in Ohio because they moved to California. And Leonard, of course, went with them, and he grew up, and he could sing, and he could play the guitar, and he was a good-looking guy. And he got a group of people together to sing with him, and they were called the Sons of the Pioneers, and that was a singing group, and they got hired by Republic Pictures. Republic Pictures made movies, and the star of all the Republic Picture movies was Gene Autry. So Gene Autry was a cowboy, and he could sing too, and he wore white clothes and a white hat, and he got the girl at the end of the movie and the bad guys who were wearing the black clothes. He got them by the end of the movie, and um, this was a very uh, good enterprise. Of course, the Sons of the Pioneers, they sang some songs, too, and they helped Gene get the bad guys. So this is working now just fine, and then World War II came along. Gene Autry was drafted to entertain troops, so he was supposed to go with USO and help entertain troops, and so he wasn't always available 
for the making of movies. And of course, the demand for movies remained high, and so they didn't have their star, but they still had a demand for movies, so they needed a backup. And as I said, he was good-looking. He could sing. He could play the guitar. He was also a tremendous athlete. He knew which end of the horse bit. He could do his own tricks off the horse. And because of his early childhood dental care from my grandfather, he had good teeth. So they said, Leonard, we want to make you a star, but this is a time of war, and with a name like Sly, that just has bad connotations. And he figured out what connotations meant. Then they said, we want you to have a name a stage name with alliteration, and then he figured out alliteration meant that the first letter of your first name and the first letter of your last name was the same letter, and so he picked Roy Rogers. So we're the real Roy Rogers, and he's Leonard Sly. <laughs> and uh, here he is. You can see him, a really handsome guy, great athlete, did all his own horse tricks, and that's Trigger, his very, very famous horse. And there's Dale Evans, and you see down there in the fine print, uh, and we're Sly of Ohio. And so here are the real Roy Rogers. That's me at the time of the Vietnam conflict, my dad, my granddad. And in the lap of my grandfather is a male, M-A-L-E child. And so this young man was uh, conceived while I was on active duty in the United States Air Force. And uh, at that date, you didn't know what the gender of the child was going to be until it was born. So my wife suggested that the name of a daughter would be Catherine. I agreed immediately to Catherine, and we, we did have a Catherine, but she wasn't first. I suggested Roy for the name of a son. My wife did not agree. So the pregnancy continued, and the child, if she were a girl, was named if child if he were a boy remained unnamed. There was not an agreement. And I was up flying with the, with the pilots one day and they said, bring the doc home. His wife has gone into labor. Well, we weren't planning for it coming this quickly, but by the time I got there, this young man was being wheeled from the labor and delivery room to the nursery. And the sign was close. It said B-O-Y Rogers. B-O-Y, Rogers. Still, still no name, but it, we knew the gender. So in the, in the recovery area, my grandfather called Sue, my wife, and said, uh, of course you're going to name this child Roy Rogers, and must have been the Demerol. She said, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, he's Rick, and I go by Nick, and uh, he's married, but no, no son, so we don't know whether there'll be another one or not. So... We're ready now to hit 10 tongue troubles. So we'll go through 10 tongue troubles, and I'll take some questions, and then we'll move into the burning mouth syndrome, and we'll talk about some of those things. And you've already had a few questions about those, and I hope they'll be answered. And if not, ask them. Now, the tongue, like the rest of us in embryology, is merging of things in the midline, in the head and neck area. And these are branchial arches. And the anterior two-thirds of the tongue comes from the first branchial arch and the base or root of the tongue that you can scarcely see unless you do ENT kinds of imaging and visualization is the root of the tongue, the base of the tongue, is from the second and third branchial arches. The most important part of the anatomy of the tongue for us is the surface anatomy, the anatomy of the epithelium covering the surface 
and the anatomy that we see, there's a line in the middle where the two parts of the branchial arches came together, and that's called a median raphe or a median sulcus. And then there's the tip of the tongue, the body of the tongue, and the root of the tongue, and this is covered by papillae. So as we look at these papillae, this is a diagram showing them, some are broad-based, wide, and big, and they look like mushrooms, and they're called fungiform papillae. Others are small and finger-like, and they're called filiform papillae. And some of the diseases we talk about means you need to understand the surface anatomy of the tongue, the fungiform and filiform papillae. The filiform papillae are long, tall columns of epithelium covered by stratum corneum. And the fungiform papillae are broad, like maces, covered also by columns of epithelium and stratum corneum. So we'll be talking about 10 specific kinds of tongue troubles that your patient may have. A furred tongue, a black, hairy tongue, a smooth tongue, a fissured tongue median rhomboid glossitis, geographic tongue, sublingual varices, oral hairy leukoplakia, herpetic geometric glossitis, and then a big tongue, macroglossia. So furred tongue is a very common, it's hypertrophy of the filiform papillae, they don't desquamate properly, that stratum corneum builds up over the surface of the tongue, it's known and seen with fever, smoking, and mouth breathing. It's seen in people who have a diet low in fiber. Fiber would abrade away some of that uh, stratum corneum. And it can be treated by brushing the surface of the tongue. We'll talk a little bit more about that. It's normal to have some fur on your tongue. It's perfectly okay to be there. It can incubate uh, a few organisms and uh, some uh, vapors may be absorbed into it, like garlic, and it can hang around there a little bit. And that's some furring of the tongue. This is pretty much normal furring of the tongue. This is not enough fur on the tongue, so it's becoming a bit devoid of a filiform papillae. And a heavily furred tongue. So it's increased in smokers who are people who are fasting, people who have dentures who don't use their dentures while they eat, eat a soft diet, and it's better off in people who brush the surface of their tongue or people who have a diet high in fiber. Now why would you want to brush the surface of your tongue? And you certainly don't want to recommend this to people who are OCD because they can sort of take, take it overboard. You know, they buy tongue rakes, then they bring in bulldozers and heavy equipment and caterpillars and that sort of thing. But right there in the middle third of your tongue, is, a lot of fur tends to build up, and that uh, is uh, a place where bacteria can work on the stratum corneum and generate aromatic vapors that rise up so that they're perceived by the nerves of your nose and go to your olfactory cortex and is, is recognized as smell. And that is the source of bad breath or halitosis. So you want to brush that area. Now you use the simple toothpaste or dentifrice, five to 15 strokes in the morning, and if you wish, again at bedtime, should keep down most of the fur off your tongue and reduce the likelihood of bad breath. So that five to 15 strokes, not 500, but just five to 15 
just to brush away that excess fur. Increase your roughage, stop smoking. Now another disease in which there's too much on the surface of the tongue is a black hairy tongue. And that's hyperplasia of the filiform papillae. And the pigment is due to bacteria that normally live on the surface of the tongue and break down into porphyrins in their metabolism. And it's sometimes related to changing the bacterial flora on the surface of the tongue so that you have more of these organisms. So here we see right down the median raphae or the median sulcus, long filiform papillae that are that are sort of black. Sometimes they even will tickle the patient and they'll gag a bit and feel uncomfortable. So that would be the hairy portion of the black hairy tongue. There it is with long hairs getting back toward the middle third of the tongue could sometimes tickle the uvula. If you had to, you could snip those with an iris scissors. They won't bleed and uh, or not very much. And uh, that could be helpful. And this is another black tongue, only it's a pseudo-hairy black tongue from Pepto-Bismol. You can see it down in the fissures of the tongue. And here's another Pepto-Bismol tongue where the color is on the fur of the tongue, but it's not a hairy tongue. So it's a pseudo-hairy black tongue. So this is a second example of something too thick. Again, you brush away the fur with the simple denifrous, increase the diet of roughage, and that will be helpful in that regard. And that, too, could contribute to halitosis. Now, the opposite, when you don't have enough filiform papillae and they aren't appropriately covered, is an atrophy of the tongue, or a bald tongue, or a smooth tongue. And this is seen in nutritional deficiencies. And when you recognize this, this is a pathological finding. So this is something that requires your evaluation, most often seen in malabsorption states, and nutritional deficiencies. And it hurts, it's sore, because it doesn't have any protection. It's like a floor burn. You fell down playing volleyball and you braided away the epithelium from your knee and it's sore and tender. And this, while not braided all the way through to an erosion, is not covered adequately. And you can see the fungiform papillae leaping out at you now because all the filiform papillae are absent. So this is an atrophic process and requires your evaluation medically. Here's one, a tongue that is so atrophic that they're beginning to lose muscle mass. And this is an example of pernicious anemia. Pernicious means it's sneaking up on you. Begins slowly, they don't have any B12, and uh, this is not good to have that happen to you. So look for systemic causes when you see a bald, smooth, atrophic tongue. Now sometimes the tongue is, surface is thrown into folds. So think of the canyon lands of the southwest United States, deep furrows, but they're all covered by epithelium, but it goes up and down and up and down, but sharp areas, and they're called fissures. And, but they are covered, they're not fissures into the lamina propria, which is the dermis of the tongue. And this is a developmental defect, so that there are no newborn babies born with a fissured tongue. But with each passing 10 years of life, greater and greater percent of people in the population will have fissures of their tongue so that when you get to 50, 60, 70, 80 years of age, we're moving up to one in six, one in five people will have some fissuring in their tongue. So it's a completely normal finding except in very young persons and in the Melkerson-Rosenthal syndrome. 
So normal fissuring, some at an angle, some down the midline, some are coming from the midline, some through the normal furring of the tongue. And this is a pathological tongue. It's too big. It has macroglossia, but it has lots and lots of fissures. It's also somewhat atrophic. And you can see the deep fur, fur, furring or fissuring, fissuring of this tongue in the Melkerson-Rosenthal syndrome. So you need to brush down into those fissures to remove the debris, which can increase halitosis, and then find out why they have this. Now, when I was in medical school, one of the first courses we had in freshman year was embryology, first quarter of the first year of medical school, and like most people who got into graduate medical education and health professions, you sort of wonder, did they make a mistake? <laughs> Do I really have it? Am I going to make it through? And the first big embryology test came up, and I didn't get this answer right. I did get a good grade on the test, so I was happy about that. But I went back to figure out why I did not get this one correct, and I found it in page 67 in very fine print in the middle of the page. But as I was trying to find the questions I missed, I realized most of them were coming from the fine print in the middle of the page, and then that really helped me out. So I just stuck to the fine print, and it was really very helpful. This is supposedly a developmental defect. So you're thinking of the branchial arches folding in an embryological life, coming to meet in the midline, and then you have the median sulcus where they do. And underneath here is something called the tuberculum impar. And that's supposed to drop down as the branchial arches come in and meet in the center. Well, this is sort of like Atlantis, because by the time you get into the second decade of life, it's supposed to rise up and be right in the middle of your tongue. Well, I accepted that when I was a freshman in uh, medical school, that that's what this was. And I could see the rhomboidal nature. Look at the five-sided figure here with a point down toward the tip of the tongue. Looks different. As a matter of fact, if you looked at a tongue like that, the first thing you should think about is, is this cancer? Because that might be an ulcer in the tongue, a chronic ulcerated tongue. I would also think of histoplasmosis and tuberculosis and and uh, tertiary syphilis in the differential diagnosis. But here are other rhomboidal plaques in the tongue. And this has always been called a developmental defect until the pathologists, because oral surgeons often did biopsies of these tongues, and so there was a lot of tissue in pathology laboratories, went back and stained all the tissues with the PAS stain and invariably found invading candida here. So this is probably a developmental defect that represents a low-grade chronic hyperplastic candidiasis. Really does not require any treatment as long as you know what it is. You know it doesn't represent anything about which you need to be worried for a systemic disease or a marker. So median rhomboid glossitis. Very common problem, the geographic tongue. Remember that the Fissured tongue becomes more and more prevalent the older and older we get, and this is the flip of that. The geographic tongue is more and more prevalent in the younger population. So in children and, and uh, young adults, this would be more likely to occur than in, than in older persons, and maybe a 1% or 2% of the population. This is a benign inflammatory disorder. It is said to be associated with psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, and other conditions. And here we can see 
this, and what do you see there but an atrophic, bald, smooth tongue right next to a fissured tongue with a very sharp mark off. You can see why they call these transient annular plaques of the tongue. Annular means round. And so these may move over time from one side of the tongue or around the tongue or on the tongue, and it's vexing to patients, and they wonder what in the world might this mean. And if you biopsy that white area, that's where you see the Monroe's microabscesses that have made people think this is psoriasis of the tongue. So you can see this, these two areas, and because that area is bald, it's tender to spices and hot and cold beverages. Here it is on the undersurface of the tongue. You can see the scallop sort of raised edges on the geographic tongue. Well, I wondered why did they call it geographic tongues? Because maybe they didn't want to say all the words that usually go with it, transit, annular, plaques, the tongue, migrating, glossitis, a whole bunch of other things. But geographic tongue was quick. And then I thought about geography, then I thought about elementary school, and I loved those bas-relief maps they had hanging on the walls and they used to pull down out of things. And you, you looked at them when you got tired of what the teacher was saying, and you could think of yourself on the Himalayas or someplace in the world where the geography was. And so I looked at this tongue and I said, oh yeah, that's the boot of Italy. I can see why they call that the geographic tongue. And then this one. Well, I really went to work hard on this one. But being from Minnesota, if you don't like the weather, just stay around a while, it's going to change. And I thought of winter, because I'm from Minnesota. And then I thought of CNN satellite image weather maps. And so you can see the high-pressure ridges building up over the Rockies, <laughs> heavy snow through the plains, and of course good weather in the southeast and the southwest and uh, Washington, D.C. But if you don't like the weather, wait around for a while, and then you get another high-pressure ridge building up over the Rockies, another snowstorm. One of my favorites is this one. Can you pick out Chile, Peru, Argentina, or maybe the Malvinas or Falkland Islands? Well, it can occasionally involve the buccal mucosa, then we would call it geographic stomatitis. And it's irritated by foods and flavors. It's not really associated with systemic disease, and the message you can give your patients is, this isn't, doesn't mean there's anything terribly wrong with you. I don't have to do any laboratory tests. We don't have to evaluate you for anything, and then try to back slowly out of the room before they ask you, what can you do about it? Because nothing. We have no way to treat this. You can do something homeopathic or non-toxic or something, give them a little Benadryl mouthwash or a little Nystatin mouthwash or a variety of things, as long as it's not expensive and not likely to hurt them, because we have no idea why it comes and we have no idea how to make it go away, but fortunately it does resolve. So you can take credit for it. Sublingual varices, another thing that's more common the older we get. Benign vascular dilatation seen more frequently in patients over the age of 40. And so here we see a tongue, and along the right lateral border of the tongue, you see some purple areas, and these are little varicose veins. And you see them pretty good size as you let that tongue roll up, and you look at the undersurface of the tongue, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, now what did I learn about? Blue rubber bleb nevis syndrome, Osler Weber Rondu syndrome, von Recklinghausen, what is this? This is normal. Here's a varix on the undersurface of the tongue, another varix on the undersurface of the tongue. 
don't think about malignant melanoma. Put your finger on it and push like a little buttonhole. It'll just go right in, and you'd realize that this is, a, this is a vessel. If you do a biopsy, please ligate first. So it's a benign vascular dilatation. Patients uh, and you will be reassured they're of no clinical significance. Now, sometimes the tongue will send you a message of serious disease, worrisome condition, and oral hairy leukoplakia is one of those conditions with characteristic white, hairy, linear plaques developing on the tongue. It's usually on the borders of the tongue and the buccal mucosa. And so this was originally described and came to our attention back in the early 1980s by the stomatologist and dermatologist Mark Conant uh, at the University of California, San Francisco, who saw healthy young men with meticulous oral hygiene who had this tongue lesions that were thought to be candidiasis, weren't. Eventually biopsies were obtained, they did electron microscopy, they saw what they th thought were virus particles, and then eventually found EB virus particles in the tongue. And so these slides are complement of John and Deborah Greenspan, and these were these patients that were originally described in The Lancet in 1984 with these finger-like hairy projections on the tongues in patients with meticulous oral hygiene. And so it was recognized as a marker for HIV disease and felt to be a defining characteristic of HIV disease until later on others recognized oral hairy leukoplakia in a renal transplant recipient who was HIV negative and then it was recognized as a marker for profound immunosuppression. So if this is occurring in a transplantation patient who's received a kidney, then they're getting too much of the anti-rejection drugs and should be cutting back. Now a second disease of the tongue indicating something rather profound and severe is herpetic geometric glossitis. Now you understand why all those pre Healthcare profession studies require the study of advanced math because this is your second geometry question of the day. Ten tender linear fissures on the dorsum of the tongue in a striking geometric pattern reported by these dermatologists from Texas. Herpetic geometric glossitis. This picture was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in a late December issue. You can see immediately that the tongue is atrophic it's smooth, it's bald, it's a, it's a, but down the midline, the raffe is quite visible, so it's fissured, but look at the right angles coming off that tongue. Now, I have no idea why they thought this might be herpes simplex virus, because there aren't any grouped papulovesicles. There are no lesions whatsoever that would make you think of herpes simplex virus, but this is a chronic herpes simplex glossitis occurring in these patients, and it occurred in patients who were immunosuppressed. And so I read about this, and then I made rounds the next month uh, at St. Mary's Hospital, and I went to see a patient who had had a cardiac transplant and was readmitted. Now, this is what herpetic geometric glossitis is not. This is acute herpetic gingivostomatitis. The first time this patient ever saw the herpes simplex virus, some of us will get acute herpetic gingivostomatitis. Self-limited disease in two or three weeks. If we have a good immune system, it'll go away. Then the herpes simplex virus goes and hides in our nervous system 
and then can reactivate later on to give us recurrent herpes simplex virus infections. And so that's not what you see, the papulovesicles here. This is the patient I saw. She was readmitted because she couldn't eat. The surgeons, of course, said, uh, tell the dermatologist to come look at her. So we did, and we came in, and I recognized this as herpetic geometric glossitis. We did a zinc prep. We found multinucleated giant cells. We sent a culture to the laboratory. It was positive. I called the surgery on call, finally got him out of the OR. I told him what it was. He said, please write the orders, and of course we did. <laughs> Put this patient on acyclovir, and she got well quickly and was able to go home. But she, too, was too profoundly immunosuppressed. So it's an idea to come cut back on immunosuppression. And responsive to the typical antiviral antibiotics and will uh, be treated. But if you keep them this immunosuppressed, it will keep coming back on them. Herpetic geometric glossitis. Which brings us to the 10th tongue trouble, a tongue that is too large for the area of the, between the jaws, many associations, and occasionally it requires a biopsy. This is a patient whose mother was hypothyroid during the gestation and pregnancy and has lots of myxedema in the tongue, called acromegaly with a big, big macroglossic tongue. So primary could be with Down syndrome, developmental defects, and then almost anything that's in the tongue can have a benign tumorous growth. Hemangiomas, lymphangiomas, neurolemomas, thyroglossal duct cysts, and then any of the slow infections, lumpy jaw actinomycosis, TB, syphilis, blastomycosis, and then the metabolic disturbances like thyroid disease or amyloidosis can all cause a, a tongue that's too big. Here, for example, is amyloidosis. And if you look, you see the purple areas in the tip of the tongue. These are areas of hemorrhage, of purpura on the tip of the tongue. Put on the gloves, palpate the tongue. It's woody hard and indurated. And uh, amyloid has been laid down. The blood vessels rupture. Purpura occurs. And of course, purpura is a sign of amyloidosis in your patients. So these are some of the causes for a the 10th tongue trouble, a very large tongue. Now, I know many of you are uh, very difficult persons for whom to buy presents because you have everything you ever wanted and your family are wondering what in the world could we buy him or her. And this is something they could buy for you because you probably don't have it yet. And Bevan and Brooks were internists at Christ Church Medical School in New Zealand. And they must have been camera lovers because they took pictures of thousands of tongues of people and there's a fissured tongue and there are all kinds of tongues in there and it's wonderful bedtime reading because it'll put you to sleep right away. <laughs> but if you ever really want to look something up on uh, Atlas of Tongues, there you, there you go. So here's Rochester at one of those times when the high pressure ridges are building across the Rockies and the snow is coming to the plains. This is when we get the Alberta Clipper down from Canada. We have nice blue skies, but it's cold. And these are the founders of Mayo Clinic. Actually, their father founded Mayo Clinic, William Worrell Mayo. He had two sons. One went to University of Michigan to medical school. The other went to Northwestern University to medical school. They came back and practiced with their father. They were both surgeons. 
Will and Charlie Mayo. And uh, this was in the, in the early part of the last century, and by the 1920s, they, they were doing pretty well because there was no income tax in those days. They both had nice houses and a bunch of kids, and they were of the people that didn't believe you should give your children any money, they should earn it for themselves. And they got into their senior years. Uh, they didn't smoke or drink, so they made it that far. And um, they decided that they would give everything to the Mayo Foundation for Education and Research. And this would be about the same kind of gift that Warren Buffett or Bill Gates has given to Bill Gates' charity, a huge amount of money in today's dollars. But it founded Mayo Clinic, and we're all salaried there, and we all work for uh, the Mayo Foundation. But this is Will and Charles, and they're in bronze, and they're out front, and of course it snows, so. <laughs> Charlie is the younger. Hey, Will, yes, Charlie, can we go inside now? Okay, so 10 tongue troubles. And what questions do you have for me for the 10 tongue troubles? All right, while you're thinking about them, I'll move on then to the burning mouth syndrome. And the burning mouth syndrome are symptoms of a sore burning mouth and they're more common and distressing than many might believe. And your first lesson here is that this is a complex multifactorial condition. In other words, these symptoms aren't from one thing. They're from many different causes and they're symptoms so that if you cough there could be a gazillion things. If you sneeze, there could be a gazillion things. If your tongue is sore and burning, there could be a gazillion things causing that. So here's a standard definition. It came from an ENT textbook, burning, stinging, sandy, itchy sensations of the mouth with five characteristics. You don't see anything when you examine the patients. They may have coexistent unrelated dental problems. <clears throat> More common in postmenopausal women who say this is, tr is unbearable and is, I can't tolerate it anymore. And these patients often have prominent psychogenic factors and think they might have cancer. And so many times when patients come to see providers, this definition is what people use. And they say, gee, I'm sorry, it's all in your head and there isn't anything I can do for you. And so they get held off, pushed off, not having this problem addressed. And yet it's a common problem and one that is very distressing for people. For example, in a general dental practice, if a questionnaire is given to the patients and they have an opportunity to tick the box for sore burning mouth or tongue, 5% of them will do so, most of whom are women. In the menopause clinic, where all of them will be women, <coughs> one in four will tick this box. And in the diabetes clinic, one in 10 will be complaining of burning or stinging a sore burning mouth. So not an uncommon symptom, sort of common, distressing, low grade, but troublesome. So these people often have been rebuffed, have been held at arm's length. Our ignorance has not allowed us to engage them about their problem. It 
If you woke up every morning and your, pain, your tongue started to burn and feel scalded and as the day went on it got worse and worse and worse and it began to interfere with the quality of your life and life wasn't as much fun anymore and you went to sleep at night and it was still there. It didn't waken you up from your sleep but when you woke up the next day it was still there and the days became weeks and the weeks became months. You'd think you had cancer or some terrible disease too and you go to your physician, or your provider, you're reassured that everything looks pretty good to me. I really don't know what it is. Maybe it's in your head. And so they sort of tuck this in and uh, stop complaining about it and just put up with it. So here's a study that came from Germany. And everybody who came to the Department of Dermatology with sore burning mouth was sent to see the psychiatrist. And so everybody had a psychiatric diagnosis. Whoops, I don't know. Do all of us have a psychiatric diagnosis? 170 out of 200 of these patients did have a psychiatric diagnosis. And you'd be depressed too if this was happening to you every day. Now the distribution is not anatomical. It's not neurological. It's bilateral. It's usually pretty symmetrical, but nothing that you would think of as neurology. It may get worse as the day goes on. Some people don't have it when they awaken in the morning. It's not incapacitating, but it really bothers them a lot. It's made better by eating and drinking. And they're really worried that something is wrong and we're missing it. So, burning, stinging, scalded sensations of the mouth, especially the tongue. And we want to think about this in primary and in secondary groups. In primary, burning mouth syndrome is idiopathic. Now you know, you've been told what idiopathic is. The doctors are too dumb to know. The idiots are pathologists and we don't know what's going on. And that's what idiopathic is. We will reduce idiopathic every year and we'll have more things that are pathic and we can find out what they are and fix them. Secondary Bernie Mouse syndrome is when we can find something that we can work on. But all of these patients are distressed and they almost all have one, two, three, four, five reasons why they have a sore burning mouth. So our job with these patients is to welcome them, tell them we understand how miserable they are, we understand their condition, and we're going to try to identify each and every cause and work with them for improvement. Because if we take a quick look at the bottom line, the outcome in these patients, we hit a home run one-third of the time, we get a hit one-third of the time, and we don't do too badly at bat the other time if we use a baseball analogy. So the outlook for these patients is surprisingly optimistic. What are the causes of symptoms of a sore, burning, stinging, scalded mouth? Dentures and oral habits cause trauma. When you have dentures, you're more likely to have denture stomatitis, you're more likely to have oral candidiasis. When you're diabetics, 10% of those people had this, you're more likely to have uh, oral candidiasis. When you're treated with antibiotics, you're more likely to develop candidiasis as a side effect. In menopause, you're more likely to be having dentures and maybe estrogen is accelerated bone loss. With diabetes, medications such as talbutamide, all those sulfonamide antibiotics can cause a perverted sense of taste and dry mouth and may be associated with this as well as candidiasis. Nutritional deficiencies. Remember the patient who had the atrophic bald tongue has a nutritional deficiency and it's our job to find their disease. Why are they nutritionally deficient? Do they have gluten sensitive enteropathy? Vitamins and minerals may be causing this. 
So here is a patient, an older person, lost a lot of vermilion, not much lipstick room left, a little bit of atrophic uh, changes at the commissures of the mouth, angular chylitis, but a pale atrophic tongue. She had pernicious anemia. This woman has a tongue thrusting habit. The tip of her tongue itches. She scratches it with her teeth. Now she's going to make it worse by traumatizing it. She needs biofeedback. Put a mouthpiece in there, tell her to quit doing that, and she may, may improve. Notice that the end of her tongue looks like you pinched the pumpkin pie you made at Thanksgiving time. Getting a little scalloping there. Her tongue is a little bit enlarged. And here's a tongue thruster, pushing the tongue against the teeth into the front of the mouth to try to dump stress. Again, biofeedback can help these people. Also, dry mouth. Many people get a dry mouth as they get older. Some of our medications cause a dry mouth, and that adds to dysfunction of the tongue. Medications, allergies, contact allergies like we talked earlier this morning, and you can understand why these patients are cancerophobic or they, they don't think we really understand what's wrong with them, and they're anxious about that. And of course, they're somewhat depressed. So here's a study that Lisa Draghi, she's on staff at Mayo Rochester, and I did <clears throat> clinical assessment and outcome of 70 patients with complaints of a burning or sore mouth <coughs> symptoms. Excuse me. <clears throat> this is Mona Zare, one of our dermatology residents. She practices in Houston, Texas now. And uh, when some patients come to Mayo Clinic, they stop for, at the admissions desk where there are shopping carts, and they put their records in their shopping carts. And, put them in the elevators and come up to see us. And so this lady brought this, this uh, folder of all her previous evaluations for the sore, burning mouth. So these were people that I had seen, and 80% of them were women. And the age range was from 26 to 81, but most patients were in middle life. They had had their disease for an average of two and a half years, but as long as 17, seen numerous clinicians and complaining of burning or soreness. So what do you do? Well, first, this is coming in the middle of a very busy day, and this is obviously a patient that's going to take a lot of time to sort out multifactorial condition, but you let the patient know that you understand the condition, you exhibit sympathy about the distress from which they suffer, Give them a hook to optimism that something can be done for them. Get your baseline laboratory test looking for correctable causes. So that's a CBC to check for anemia, and then zinc and iron, two minerals, and then all the vitamins you can measure, and all, all the B vitamins, so folic acid, B1, B2, B6, and B12, and then check them for uh, malabsorption. We have a blood test for that called tissue transglutaminase antibodies, TTG. You can order that blood test with IgG or IgA and it's for sprue. So there's a blood test for gluten sensitive enteropathy or sprue and it's often a cause of malabsorption, malabsorption in the B vitamin family and you can check for that and then bring them back with the result of the laboratory test when you have a little more time to deal with them and do a good careful oral examination and when you're done, if you don't see anything for cancer, tell them they don't have oral cancer. Sometimes you'll be met with an audible sigh of relief from these patients. 
you may want to incorporate the dentist into your care of the patient. Make sure that the mouth is in good shape and uh, there's nothing there that, that they can help you out with. And uh, I always encourage my patients to have, in addition to my exam, uh, in, engage their dentist in uh, their care because the denture may be there and may be part and parcel of the problem. Hardly ever need a biopsy, hardly ever need a culture for candidiasis. Sometimes we do patch testing when we're sort of toward the end of the line and get help when we need it. Well, what did we find in these 70 patients? That one in four of them had a dry mouth. We'll go into this in a moment, but that is something you can help them fix that will relieve many of their symptoms. One in four of them have dentures. Now, when the denture was made and placed by the dentist, it fit the mouth perfectly. As soon as you extract the teeth from the jaw, the jaw begins to undergo bone loss because it's stimulated to grow by the movement of your teeth, the grinding, the chewing, and the teeth acting upon each other. When they're gone, then there is no more stimulus for bone growth and the mandible and the maxilla just begin to disappear. And think about the mouths you've looked at and there's this little tiny trough left and that denture has got to sit in there and it's supposed to go up to here and now there's, it's just sort of rocking and rolling in there so it no longer fits. It's not the fault of the dentist, it's the loss of uh, bone. Geographic tongue, one in six, furred tongue, atrophic tongue, fissured tongue. So there are findings for you. And then laboratory-wise, you can back up some of your con uh, considerations like diabetes, deficiencies of various minerals or vitamins. And whether or not they had burning as their main symptom or soreness of their main symptom, soreness often said denture stomatitis. And how did it come out for these people? Whether or not burning or soreness, we were able to identify a number of issues with which we were able to deal. It's multifactorial. Deal with each factor. The more factors you find and deal with, the better your outcome is likely to be. So treat dry mouth. Adapt to the denture. It may need to be replaced. Control oral habits like tongue thrusting. Replace vitamins and minerals. Avoid irritants or allergens and uh, treat candidiasis if it's present. Now dry mouth was really common. The dentist is working on the denture and you're working on the dry mouth issue. The denture, uh, dentist can help you there. But dry mouth is really rather common and as we get older we don't make as much saliva as we did when we were younger. And in, in addition, the saliva is not as effective as it, as it used to be. For example, saliva, the way I think of it, has got two things in it, water and slip. So slip is to reduce friction. It's like oil in the engine. And when that's in balance, your saliva feels really great. But after you talk for two hours like I have, why I'm starting to get a little bit too much mucus and a little too little water, and now I'm beginning to feel that my saliva is heavy and thick. And this occurs then as we get older, there's an imbalance of the components of saliva. Saliva also contains a lot of immunoglobulins and uh, digestive enzymes. It's a very important part of our, of our overall health. But this uh, begins to drop off as we get older and can be uh, diminished by our medications. 
and here of a list of medications. All of this information is on your thumb drive, so if you want to go back and review some of the medications or some of the diseases that might be associated, that can be helpful. Unusual to have somebody so dehydrated uh, in your practice, but radiation therapy in the past, surgical removal of salivary glands, that's pretty straightforward. The saliva lubricates the mouth and throat and helps clean the mouth and teeth. And if that is gone, well, then the mouth is no longer, you know, nicely functional, becomes abnormally functional. Dryness causes the tongue to feel funny, scalded, burning, and uncomfortable. So these are the symptoms of a dry mouth. Thick, stringy saliva, frequent thirst, difficulty speaking and swallowing, cracks in the corner of the mouth, burning or tingling of the tongue, red or sore tongue, and on and on. So we may want our patient to use a salivary substitute. The products made by Biotene, B-I-O-T-E-N-E, -E, and I don't, uh, I don't consult with them, are very helpful. There's toothpaste, there's mouthwash, there are mouth rinses, and these products, in addition to those which you see down there, can be purchased without a prescription and can be very helpful to the patient in counteracting dry mouth. I also tell my patients to keep a little bottle of water with them, and whenever they feel like their mouth is getting dry, to use some of that, rinse it around, and expectorate it if they don't want to go to the bathroom all the time. Warm water works better than cold water to liquefy the mucus, which is drying down on their mucosa. Sometimes we have to horsewhip the salivary glands, and there are drugs that have been used in cancer patients, Salogen and Evazac. But when you stimulate the salivary glands, it's a nonspecific stimulation, and if it's out of whack and there's too much mucus and not enough water and you stimulate them, you just get more of the imbalance. So we can't fix the imbalanced saliva. We can sometimes push out more saliva. Substitutes are better. Cool water during the day, occasionally ice chips, milk with meals, these are helpful hints. You may want to copy them down and have them available for your patient. We do like sugar-free chewing gums and have the patients use them to stimulate the flow of saliva. We don't want a lot of sugar in that mouth because people with a dry mouth tend to get a lot of cavities at the gingival margin, so they need to be seeing their dentist every six months having fluoride treatments to prevent them from losing their teeth. So the denture adaptation the dentist can help us with, denture stomatitis occurs, denture store mouth is a common problem, trauma and candidiasis. Here's a study from the British Dental Journal, 21 patients, uh, age range uh, 43 to 81, mean of 60, complete evaluation, 25 denture defects, seven hematinic deficiencies, five patients with anxiety or cancerophobia, and one each with a number of different Things. And when all were identified and fixed, the outcome was good in these patients. So that when denture stomatitis is present, you're looking at a very good potential outcome if you can get everything going in the right direction. Now this is one of our patients. You can see she has a few remaining teeth, but look at the redness of her mucosa. She has stomatitis. She has pooling of white material. She has candidiasis. It's due to this ancient partial plate. These things are porous. The yeast just goes right up into the pores, and no matter what you do to that denture plate, it's like crabgrass, you know? It's going to come right back in. As soon as you put that partial back in, boom, it's going to reseed candidiasis. So that's got to go. It's got to be replaced. 
This is a guy with a denture, but he lost the bone in his jaw when he got his denture. And so look what his lower arches tried to do to hold that denture in place. It looks like waves coming in on the shore with four or five uh, waves coming in. And that's all hyperplastic mucosa in an attempt to hold the denture in place. He needs a new denture. It may need to be anchored by titanium post, but that's obviously a denture stomatitis. So seek more than one cause, multifactorial. The etiology is common with the dentures, yeast, bone loss. So the symptoms of a sore, burning mouth are very common and very distressing. And it's a complex, multifactorial condition. But you can get your hands around it, find all the potential causes, and improve the situation. Your job is to approach this as a detective, identify and address each element to ensure the best outcome, and let your patient have some optimism. Because the bottom line is that about half your patients are going to have an abnormal tongue exam. That may help you move along toward a deficiency. A third of them, or 25%, will have a dry mouth. You can help that get improved. 25% of them will be wearing a denture. That can be improved. And then we can fix whatever else remains, candidiasis, deficiencies. And in follow-up, we get to the, about this point. About a third of them are substantially improved. Now, Lisa Draghi called every one of these patients. We had a, a, a scripted interview that she went through. And months and months after they had come, and we had identified what was going on, and they were all uniformly happy that this disease had been recognized as organic and not all in their heads, that a third of them had a substantial improvement, a third were moderately improved, and a third weren't improved as dramatically as they would have hoped or we would have hoped, and the most satisfied group were the last group because they knew that it was not hopeless and that they had improved after years of daily suffering. So you can make a big difference in these people's lives by recognizing this as a condition with potential correctable causes, a condition which can be managed. It's hard. It's like atopic dermatitis. You've got to do seven things at the same time to get a good outcome, but it's really worthwhile for both you and the patients and they'll be very pleased to manage the dry mouth. Now, some of our patients, when we get down to the end of the day, we fixed everything we can, that pain is still a big problem for them. And here's what happens to these people. Having pain every minute of every waking hour of every day, weeks, months, and years, causes the pain to be imprinted in the central nervous system. You know about the person who lost their arm in the corn picker, but the hand still itches. The person who's had herpes zoster and the rash is completely gone, but they still have burning in the dermatome in which they had herpes zoster post-herpetic neuralgia. This is exactly what these people have, and we have to then work to unearth the imprinting of the pain in the central nervous system. So low-dose amitriptyline. That will make their xerostomia a little worse, but 10 milligrams a night, not 150, 50 and 150 milligrams of amitriptyline, but low-dose amitriptyline may be very helpful. Neurontin may be helpful for these patients, too, as a way of stopping the imprinting of the pain in their central nervous system. And one of the drugs that we have enjoyed using, and I'm not sure exactly what it does or why it does, but it's been tried, 
alpha-lipoic acid, which doesn't require a prescription. It's purchased over the counter. You have to write it out for the patient. They have to go get it. 200 milligrams three times a day for 12 weeks. Don't expect much to happen for four weeks. Then something is going to begin to happen. And then by 12 weeks, maximum benefit will have been gleaned. And these were uh, patients that we reported. 31 of 35 took it as we directed and 11 reported benefit, or about a third had really good outcome. So this is something that you can get, have them use, and that, that might improve the situation. You may also want to use the low-dose amitriptyline. And then, for terrible problems, there are also sometimes terrible treatments. Remember the quote from Hamlet, desperate diseases by desperate appliances are relieved. And so topical capsaicin, you remember this drug, Zostrix, that's available for herpes zoster pain that persists too long? Well, that contains capsaicin. Guess where the mother load of capsaicin comes from? Louisiana. It's that hot sauce. So Tabasco sauce. You take one drop of Tabasco and six, eight drops of water, mix it up, and stick it on the tongue. Oh. It's terrible. It hurts like the Dickens. Keep doing that. And then make it five drops of water. And then make it four drops of water. Eventually, you deplete the nerve endings of all the neurotransmitters. They just won't pass those chemicals across anymore. That's the way capsaicin works. And that's worked sometimes for some of our people with really intractable disease. So that's the last thing you do, the trial by fire, with topical capsaicin. But there's some reference there for you if you want to try that. So we've talked about the 10 tongue troubles ending up with macroglossia and then the most vexing of all tongue problems, the sore burning mouth syndrome, which is more common than uh, believed and, and, uh, but perfectly amenable to treatment. Our job is to identify and correct every possible cause that we can find. Many of the patients who came to see us had a clinician find one thing and treat it appropriately, but missed two or three others. And your job is to make sure nothing is missed, everything is treated at the same time, work with the dentist in concert with the patient, give them a chance for optimism. The outcome may be very good in your patient, and they will be very, very pleased and relieved. So I want to thank you very much for your kind attention. I have about five minutes for questions. Thank you. Is this a question coming to the microphone? Yeah. I was wondering uh, if you could recommend a specific product. Is uh, you know I've I have friends that are dentists and they recommend tongue brushes and I've recommended to the patients and they can they tell me they can never find them. Is there a specific product that you Good can recommend? Good question. Tongue brushes. I have two toothbrushes. I have a soft bristled toothbrush that I use for my teeth because I don't want to damage my gums with a hard bristled toothbrush. I have a hard bristle toothbrush that I use 5 to 15 strokes on the dorsum of my tongue. So I have two toothbrushes. I make one one color, one the other color, so I can remember which they are. But a soft bristle toothbrush is best to get the plaque off your teeth, stimulate your gums, and then a hard bristle toothbrush. You don't need a tooth rake. A hard bristle toothbrush, 5 to 15 strokes at the end of it, and then expectorate any um, mucus and liquid, and you're done. 
All right, coffee break time. Thank you very much. <laughs>